Good morning. So let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you're a God of love and a God of truth and that your spirit is working to change hearts and minds. We ask that we can be part of your end time process and, and ministry to prepare the world for your return. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So our lesson today, lesson 12 in the quarterly preparation for the end time, the uh, title is Babylon and Armageddon. And the memory verse is out of Revelation 17.5, and it reads, On her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abomination of the earth. I know as you read that, your mind immediately goes, what, what does that mean? What's the meaning of the words? Is it speaking of Iraq? As you know, Iraq today is the, the physical location of ancient Babylons. In our, in our, is it speaking of Iraq? Or is it symbolic of something else? Is this idea that's being communicated at the end of time restricted to some place in the Middle East, or is it talking about something that's going to be happening globally, worldwide? What does abomination mean? The actual word. What, what is an abomination? What does abomination mean? I looked it up. It means something vile, disgusting, reprehensible, and shameful. That's what abomination means. Vile, disgusting, reprehensible, and shameful. And in Bible terms... What would fit this description? What is actually an abomination in Bible terms? Sin. Sin? Okay, well, of course, sin. Yeah. This is the mother of, uh, of harlots, of the abomination of the earth, it says. Uh, this power being described in this way, could we say it's warring against God and God's kingdom? Is this a physical war, or is this war a war for hearts and minds? War for hearts and minds. And in this war, what is Satan's goal? I'm going to give you a couple of options. Is Satan's goal simply to physically destroy all the righteous people, kill them, knowing that they're going to be resurrected to eternal life? Is that his goal? Or is his goal to corrupt their hearts, minds, and characters such they become like Satan and are eternally lost? Notice his goal is not simply to use tactics that might burn somebody at the stake or, or have somebody beheaded and then have them resurrected to eternal life, he loses. He wants to corrupt the hearts, minds, and characters. So what is more abominable? To kill an innocent child in their innocence, knowing they'll be resurrected to eternal life, or to turn the innocent child into a perpetrator and purveyor and lover of evil? Which is more abominable? Now, what would be more abominable than turning God's children into enemies of God. What's more abominable than that? Doing it in such a way that the evildoers believe they're serving God. Not only then are they corrupting their characters and moving themselves further and further away from God, becoming more like Satan in character, but now they're misrepresenting God himself and leading more people to this distorted system that destroys them while they're claiming to be serving God. Do you see how that's the most abominable? And that's what's being described here. The abomination of the earth is a system that represents and claims to represent God, but actually destroys people's character and leads them away from God. Does anybody disagree with that? And it's okay if you do. Remember, we all have our, everybody has to be fully persuaded in their own mind. If you have a better view, let, let, I want to hear it. But this is what makes sense to me. Now, 
With this description in mind, can you demarcate? Can you actually specify the attributes that make a clear distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan? So that you can actually look and, and, and say, okay, these practices, these methods, these, these identifying features are, will help me see God's kingdom at work versus identify a system that claims to be for God, but it actually is practicing Satan's methods. Well, I made a list, and this is not an exhaustive list. You can add to this list, but a list that, that may be a, a good starting point. God's kingdom values truth and thinking and reasoning. Come, let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet, we will like snow. Every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind, says in Romans 14. The mature are those who've developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. The, the true system is going to encourage you to reason, encourage you to think, encourage you to weigh evidences, teach you how to, to discern the right from the wrong, and be founded on eternal, non-wavering truths. False system devalues truth. Thinking's not important. Teach things and platitudes that sound really good. Well, we have faith. We don't need evidence. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. We don't need to ask questions. We don't need to research. We don't need... Well, my Bible said it. The Bible said it. There's no question. You just take it as it reads. Sounds kind of good. But it leads to non-thinking. We're going to get to some more specific examples later. Here's another one. Emanates from and brings forth more other-centered love, God's kingdom emanates from and brings forth more self-centeredness or selfishness. Satan's kingdom. Now sometimes that can be hard to see just by the behavior itself because there are many selfish people who give in order to get. They don't give in order to give. They give in order to get. It's manipulative giving. And sometimes it's hard to see just on the external uh, some, some, I think most of us can see easily the politician who right before election goes and spends all day at a soup kitchen feeding and, and make sure the news media is there. He's given, you know, he's helping, but is he really given to help or is he given to get votes? You see, uh, we can see that one. It's kind of not too hard to see, okay? But sometimes it's harder to see, but it's still the truth. God's kingdom is founded and based upon design law. He's the creator, the builder of reality, his laws, the laws upon which reality are, ba- are, are work. Satan's kingdom, because he's not the creator, he can't build space-time matter. Satan's kingdom and all the kingdoms of the world are based on made-up rules, imposed rules that are enforced by coercion. God's kingdom is based on worship freedom. Present the truth in love, leave people free. No coercion. Satan's kingdom is based always at some point on worship enforcement. We are going to force people with legislation, with coercive pressure. No one can buy or sell save him who has the mark of the beast. We're going to seek to get a hold of our presidents and get them the right ones elected, get the right Supreme Court justices, get the right senators, get the right laws passed, make the changes in the law to coerce everybody to practice their religious practices the way we do. You'll notice the New Testament church lived in a a representative government. Rome had a senate. They had governors. It was a society that was much more abusive of civil rights and human rights than our society 
Slavery was paramount, uh, was, was ubiquitous. They had uh, arenas in which the people would kill each other and slaughter each other, gladiators in the arena, and so forth and so on. But human life was cheap. People had no real rights. And you don't see Christ and the apostles seeking to change the human government. They seek to change the hearts of people. That's the true Christian and gospel work. To, to, to have the heart circumcised by the Holy Spirit, to change the inner workings of the man. And when you change people, where they have selfishness and fear replaced with love, then your community changes. Your society changes. That's the real Christian approach. The, the false approach is to have righteous goals but use Satan's methods. This is the abomination. The God's kingdom, of course, God is the source of salvation. Satan's kingdom, God is the source of of destruction. God will one day in justice use his power to torture and kill all those who don't believe him. He is the source of death. He is the source of pain. He is the source of punishment. Of course, we call it justice, but it still comes from him in that system. In God's kingdom, Jesus is God's agency to heal his creation, all things are brought together under one head, Jesus Christ. All things in heaven and earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross, according to scripture. Jesus is God's agency to heal his creation under God's kingdom. Under Satan's kingdom, Jesus is man's advocate to remove God's wrath. Do you see the difference? We have an advocate, an intercessor standing with God to hold back, to plead with him. In God's system, God's justice is saving and healing all who will let him. In Satan's system, God's justice is inflicting proper punishments. God's system leads to order and peace. Satan's system leads to chaos and violence. God's system leads to unity. All things come under one head. We are unified. Satan's system leads to fragmentation. Division. There are 34,000 different Christian groups in the world today, all claiming the Bible supports their views. Why? Because they have an imposed law construct. And when you understand imposed laws, imposed laws are like the laws we pass. And think about all the laws that we have in this county, this state, this city, this country. A thousand different permutations of the laws can be written. But there's only one law of gravity, one law of thermodynamics. One, when you come to design law, all those things fade away and we have unity. With this in mind, can you identify, as I demarcate these two systems, again, that's not a, an inclusive list. I'm sure there are many more we could add, but you get the picture. With this kind of dichotomy in mind, can you identify systems in the world today that promote God's methods versus systems that promote Satan's method? And what the abomination is. What the harlot and her daughters represent. So this is uh, Revelation 17.5 from The Remedy. The title written on her forehead, descriptive of her character and methods, was Mister Mysterious Babylon the Great, the confusing system of religious traditions, fable and falsehood that obscures the truth about God. The mother of prostitutes, the many diverse religious sects who sell their virtue for earthly advantage and seduce others into their bed of lies about God, the abomination of the earth. Do we see religions of the world more consistently promoting the truth about God today? or corrupted with the wine, the false teachings of Babylon. Sunday's lesson. Any comments about that? 
Sunday's lesson. It's, uh, ta- it's entitled, The Wine of Her Wrath, referring to Babylon. What does wine, literal, physical wine, do to a person? Numbs, other thoughts? Depresses, other thoughts? What does impact does wine have on the reasoning abilities, the abilities to discern, to comprehend, to understand, to self-restrain, to make critical, wise decisions? It impairs it all. It impairs higher cortex function. That's what it does. So this is a metaphor. The wine of Babylon, it, I'm going to suggest to you, is going to have a similar impact. It's going to impair reasoning. It's going to impair critical decision-making. It's going to impair self-governance. It's going to cause a person to be stuporous in their processing and their mental processing. So what does Babylon distribute? This system that we just talked about. What does it distribute that has an effect the effect to damage the mind, undermine reasoning, impair discernment, impair comprehension, undermine critical thinking, and impair self-governance. What does it distribute that does that? Lies. Lies, exactly. Let's give some example. False theologies, distorted belief systems that are contradictory in nature, what we call antithetical beliefs. If A is true, by definition, it will mean that B is false. This is an antithetical belief. It's either one or the other. They can't both be true simultaneously. Are there things taught in Christianity that if A is true, B is automatically false, but both are held up to be true? How about this? God is love. Now, that is a Bible truth. Let's stand by that truth. God is love, and and love is not self-seeking. Love is other-centered. Love is self-sacrificial. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us. We ought to give our lives for our brothers. This is love. God is love. No no, no, No question about it. But it's also taught that if you don't love him, he'll use his power to torture you in hell for eternity. Wait a second. Try that on somebody you love. I want to be like God, and God is love. And he says, if I love you, I'm going to show you my love in various ways. Lots of self-sacrificial stuff. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to do lots of stuff for you. But in the end, if you refuse to love me, well, I'll be as godly as I can. I can't burn you for eternity, so I'll just pour gas on you and burn you for a few minutes till you die. Do you love me more? Does that work for anybody? It's antithetical. It's actually a violation of design law called the law of liberty. Whenever you threaten somebody... You damage love and incite rebellion. And so how is this belief held amongst millions and millions, billions of Christian folk? God is love, but if you don't love him, he'll either torture you as long as you deserve and kill you or torture you for all eternity. How is it held? This is how it's held. By shutting off reasoning power and they go, well, you know what? God's ways aren't my ways. His ways are higher than my ways. I can't comprehend an infinite God. That's beyond my ability to comprehend and understand. I don't ask that question. I just trust that it's loving. Wendell. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says, love does not keep a record of wrongs. <laughs> yes, there you go. Love does, keeps no record of wrongs. And there's another antithetical belief. But yet we have the idea, and we come up in the lesson in a short bit, that God has got his uh, guardian angel, or excuse me, recording angels, following you around to record all your wrongs. Now, does the Bible teach there's record books? Yes, it does. Can you harmonize love keeps no record of wrongs, God is love, therefore God keeps no record of wrongs, with the fact the Bible keeps records? Do you have harmony with those? 
<coughs> yes, why do you keep, uh, you keep records? What kind of records do you keep, Wendell? Maybe everybody doesn't know what you do. What do you do? You're a physician. Why do you keep records? To see what is wrong so I can fix it. And? The record of it being getting well. Okay, so if you remember the story. It tells in one of my, my books. When I was in medical school here, I did my fourth year of medical school here at Erlanger. And uh, when I was doing an ER rotation, there was a helicopter crash at Level Field here in Chattanooga. And they brought all the victims to, uh, to the ER. And one of the victims uh, had a fractured pelvis and, and broken femur. And she was hemorrhaging into the tissues. She wasn't hemorrhaging outside her body, but her, she was bleeding into the tissues of her body. And it would still result in a sanguination. In other words, she was going to bleed out and die. Uh, so she needed surgery and she needed transfusions. But she was alert and awake and understood when she came in and she was a Jehovah's Witness. And she refused blood transfusions. And immediately when she told us that, something started happening. The, 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 the head nurse assigned one nurse to stand in that room and do one thing and one thing only. Record. 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 Her job was simply to record everything that happened in that room. And then intercession began. The nurses, the doctors, the medical students began pleading with her, explaining to her, educating her, begging her, let us, let us, let us save you, let us, here's what's going to happen. The autotransfusers, wherever they could use them, were being used to, she would accept her own blood coming back into her body, and to the degree we could do that, we were doing that. She would accept IV fluids, and we were trying to expand with volume enhancers and trying to do that, but she was still bleeding out internally. We couldn't recycle that blood, it had no access to it. The hospital administrators came down and began to plead. A hospital attorney came down. Everybody's interceding with her. And then, yet she says no. And at some point, she finally passes out, loses consciousness. And guess what? Intercession stopped. We stopped pleading. We stopped interceding. Why did we stop interceding? Because we don't care anymore? We don't want to help her? She's reached the limits of our, our, our patience with her. The cup of our wrath is filled full. No, she's beyond responding to us anymore. And the whole time, this nurse is documenting, 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 documenting. Now, I'm going to tell you, every person on that helicopter lived except her. She died. She was African-American. The others weren't. Do you see a problem potentially setting up here? Now, what happens if the family brings a lawsuit against the doctors and the hospital for failing to save this woman when they saved everybody else? They allege all types of biases, all types of racial injustice. It's documented. What will then come into evidence? My records. Are the records coming into evidence to judge and condemn and punish this woman? Or to exonerate the healthcare team that they did everything they could and there was nothing more they could do? That's the purpose of the heavenly records. The records are being kept not as keeping a record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs, but love keeps records but not to judge and punish by, but to demonstrate that when anyone is lost in the end, it will be revealed when you look at the records and the history of what actually happened, God was there with every agency he had, pleading, working, interceding, and intercession only stopped when that person went beyond the point that nothing would reach them anymore. And it will be shown that they're only lost by their own insistence in refusing to let God heal. So there's a place. We have harmony now. Isn't it beautiful? This is what we have to do. We have to be able to take Scripture, and we have to see it in its larger reality. We have to be able to harmonize it, but much of what happens in this, in this abomination system 
is it teaches people to believe things that make no sense, that are contradictory. God is God of love, and he's keeping a record of wrongs, and he's going to examine that record one day, and he's going to tally up all the misdeeds that you didn't get forgiveness for, and the blood of Christ wasn't applied to, and then he's going to use his divine power. He's going to torture you as long as you deserve it, and he's going to kill you, but he loves you. What? It makes no sense. Can't think. This is uh, out of a book called Christian Education, page 73. Satan has ascribed to God all the evils to which flesh is heir. He has represented him as a God who delights in the suffering of his creatures, who is revengeful and implacable. It was Satan who originated the doctrine of eternal torment as a punishment for sin, because in this way he could lead men into infidelity and rebellion, distract souls, and, this is interesting, dethrone human reason. Because you can't believe that and still be a reasonable thinking person and believe in a God of love. You have to not think about it. And I've, I've talked to Christians from all, basically all denominational groups around the world, and those who hold to this view, when I bring up this contradiction, they inherently always fall back on, well, God's ways aren't my ways. Uh, we, we, we can't discern the, the mysteries of an infinite God. We just take that on faith. In other words, they're demonstrating that they won't think about it. They're dethroning their own reason. How about this one? God, is love. God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus and then he killed Jesus because if he didn't kill Jesus, he'd kill you. You say, nobody teaches that. That's exactly what is taught in penal substitution theology, that God on the cross, for justice sake, put all the sins on Jesus and then punished Jesus in our place, venting the divine wrath on him and taking his life instead of our life and you accept the payment, he won't vent his wrath on you and he won't kill you now. They just don't use that language. They, 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 they try to hide it in, in legally, I mean, a the- theological jargon. How about relics? Just got back from Europe. Saw several uh, amazing, amazing architectural structures. Notre Dame, um, Sacré-Cœur, uh, Saint-Chapelle, uh, uh, some of these uh, amazing cathedrals, unbelievable. Uh, but we also heard the stories about how they came to be in the 12th century and when the Saint-Chapelle was built. It was built to hold the relics. And the relics were pieces of the cross or, or pieces of some saint's bone or, or something like this. And it was taught that if you had a relic, when you prayed, that relic would enhance your ability to have your prayers heard by God and acted on by God. This is what many people believed for many years. Jesus is in a building in heaven, interceding in a sanctuary. And when you pray, it goes up before him and he mixes your prayers with smoke. And that smoke and incense ascend before the Father and, it make, and he puts a little bit of his blood in there as well to purify your prayers because your prayers are defiled and it takes the blood of Jesus to purify them. And it sends before the Father and the Father, when it's mixed with the, with the incense and blood of Christ, will then accept your prayers. And you haven't heard that one? Monday's lesson, second paragraph, says, the second angel's message of Revelation 14.8 about the fall of Babylon is here repeated in Revelation 18.2. It is an expression of just how corrupt the entity has become. Revelation 17 goes on to describe the, this fallen religious system. And then in chapter 18, uh, the three angels' messages are, are to be given again. So, do you understand what, what, what the Bible is suggesting? So, here we have, if you under, read, read Scripture, in Revelation 14... The three angels' message is to be given. So the angel, it's a worldwide message, it's to go to the world, prepare the world for the coming of Christ. But it, over here in Revelation 18, a few chapters later, it's given again. Why? What's, what's the implication here? 
Why has it been given again? Is, if, the first, if the first time the three angels' message was given, it was accepted, it was internalized, it was applied, it was transformative, the, the world was lightened by the glory, and this it says, uh, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come, worship him who made the heavens and sea and all there. It, 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 oh, here's the angel with the eternal gospel, the eternal gospel, fear God and give glory to him. If, if this message had actually had the impact on hearts and minds, what would have happened? The world would have been prepared. Christ would have returned. So what's the implication that it's given again in Revelation 18? That it didn't do its work the first time it was given. It didn't have the impact. Something went wrong with its initial um, transmission of the message. Tim, aren't there levels of communication that have to begin with uh, sort of an, an awakening and then sort of an education process and then ultimately... So. That's exactly how truth we have to have. Something has to trigger us to question the premises that we hold. Huh. And then we have to then process the evidence, testing it against reality, scripture, God's laws, how they work, and so forth. And then make a new decision to both believe and then apply for it to be transformative. Yeah. Um, this is Revelation 18, the first couple of verses. By the way, the Revelation 14 message, when was it initially given? It was in the 19th century. The Great Awakening led to the, the proclamation of the of Revelation 14, three angels' messages. But what happened? Why didn't it finish its work? Can anybody describe historically what actually happened to the group of people that were promoting this message of a fallen Babylon? We just went through earlier what's the difference between the Babylon system, the corrupt system, and God's true system. So what do you think happened? They became infected with imposed law. They accepted the same lie. And thus, now they have fragmented off from the rest of, you know, in their own little group of remnant folks, and they have their own new system of rules and their own system of religious observances, but now it's being taught through the same imperialistic system. God has his rules. If you don't keep his rules, he's got his records, and if he doesn't, and if you don't get them free, and he's going to be the punishing source, and thus they're teaching the same corruption as the rest of Christianity, just with a different checklist of rules. This is why the message has to be given again. From the remedy, Revelation 18. After this, I saw another messenger come down from heaven, symbolizing the godly origin of his message. He had the great authority and power, great authority and power of truth. And the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a voice reverberating throughout the earth, he shouted, Babylon, the greatest fallen, is a fallen system of religious tradition, fable and falsehood, distorting the truth about God. Every demonic distortion about God, every evil attribute toward, toward God, and every filthy and destructive heart, heart motives find their home with her. For she intoxicates the world with her pagan views of God, maddening them with her adulterous idea that God coerces and must inflict punishment if not properly appeased. Earth's leaders corrupt themselves with her by practicing her methods, and people not anchored in God's kingdom of love, and those who wander from philosophy to philosophy fill their minds with her smorgasbord of lies. 
Then I heard another voice calling from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Leave that confusing mess of evil thinking so that you will not share in her spiritual sickness and rebellion, so that you will not receive the suffering she has chosen. For her violations of God's designs for life have piled up to heaven and God diagnoses her condition accurately. She will reap what she has sown. All that she has done will come back on her with double intensity from her own evil condition. Do we find that the fallen system of Babylon confused by its acceptance of the lie that God's law is imposed and imperialistic and subsequent multiplicity of various doctrines, rules, arguments, and its punishing God has infected the world. Do we find that to be true? Every Christian group is infected with this view. I document that in the God-shaped heart. Every Christian view. I'm not saying every Christian view necessarily has this as their official view. I'm saying every Christian group is infected with this. Agnostics and evolutionists tasted the wine, the ideas of of a punishing, imperialistic God. They found it irrational. They didn't like what they tasted. They rejected God and moved into their own theories. But the theories of evolutionism and agnosticism are reacting to the wine that's repulsive to them, to these ideas. Islam and Judaism worship the same imperialistic God, the source of punishment upon their enemies, looking for their Messiah or their Imam to come and rule the world with a rod of iron and punish the nations. All pagan religions have gods that require some payment, some sacrifice, some work, some appeasement in order to do some blessing. The entire world is drunk on this wine, this lie about God and his law. And then what happens to a person or persons who operate on this particular lie. God's laws, like human laws, he has his rules. If you break those rules, you get in legal trouble. If you don't get the legal accounting taken care of, then God's required to punish you. What actually happens functionally, operationally? What do they look like? What do the religious practices look like? How do they behave? How do they treat others? Does something different happen when somebody views God as their loving Savior and realizes that his laws are the protocols upon which life is built and God is working and wanting to heal and and fix what's broken in them? Does something different happen in their practices, their approaches, how they treat others? So I was reading this morning a book called Steps to Christ. On page 44, I read the following. And think about what I just asked you. What practices do you see in people who've accepted the imperial imposed punishing law versus what practices do you see with somebody who's seen God as a God of love? Listen to this. I'll make some comments. It's just one paragraph. There are those who profess to serve God while they rely on their own efforts to obey his law to form a right character and secure salvation. Their hearts are not moved by any deep sense of the love of Christ. But they seek to perform the duties of the Christian life as that which God requires of them in order to gain heaven. What kind of law construct leads to an idea that this is what God requires? God requires the TV off before sunset on Friday. If I don't have it off before sunset on Friday, that's a, de- uh, that's a sin in my book, and I have to I have to ask for confession for that, and I have to get forgiveness. And if I don't, that one one moment, two, 37 seconds before I, the TV was on, 37 seconds after the sun went down, and I'm going to go to hell. God's going to have to punish me for that. I've got to make sure I behave right. This is imposed law. It's penal substitutionary in its construct. Well, keep on with the quote. Such religion is worth nothing. Why is it worth nothing? Because it doesn't heal. 
It doesn't transform. And worse, it gives a false security to those who practice it, who believe that their sins are taken care of, who believe that they will have pardon in the judgment, who believe they're going to get a pass into heaven, but there's no transformation of the person. This is an abomination. These are, this is the abomination of Babylon. This is the idea that here these people are getting corrupted in character, but they believe now that they're fulfilling God's purposes and they're misrepresenting God as an arbitrary dictator. On with the quote. When Christ dwells in the heart, the soul will be so filled with his love, with the joy of communion with him, that it will cleave to him. And in the contemplation of him, self will be forgotten. Love to Christ will be the spring of action. Do you notice that this description is an internal change within the believer who loves Christ. Something's happening in their heart. The law is being written on the heart and mind. The heart is being circumcised by the Spirit. The heart of stone is being removed. The heart of uh, flesh is being put in. This is true salvation. This is not a legal pronouncement. A couple more sentences. Those who feel the constraining love of God do not ask how little may be given to meet the requirements of God. They do not ask for the lowest standard, but aimed at perfect conformity to the will of their Redeemer. With earnest desire, they yield all and manifest an interest proportionate to the value of the object which they seek. A profession of Christ without this deep love is mere talk, dry formality, and heavy drudgery. Yeah, you want to make a comment? Yes, it is the abomination of desolation. That's what it is. It's the abomination of lies about God that desolates the soul. That's what the abomination of desolation is. It desolates, it destroys while people feel good about their religious practice. Yes. We as humanity have made God against himself. That all three members of the Godhead are not the same that Christ is different than God the Father, and that somehow they have to plead among themselves to get each other to behave themselves. Yes, this is, this is, this is, and why does that happen? Again, the root, but people understand the reason why. Because of imperialism. Because the law requires a punishment. So somebody has to be the authoritarian figure to punish. Somebody, there has to be a payment. Somebody has to, and so this led to this entire construct that you, because of the distortion and accepting of the falsity of God's law. In John 17, it says, eternal life is to know you. And so if we truly know God, who he is, we don't have to have someone pleading with the Father. If we truly know who He is and understand His character, how can you how could you love or commune with someone in prayer to someone that you don't like or you don't trust? Well, most most many Christians don't. They pray to Jesus. They don't pray to the Father, except for the formal prayer, "Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name." Romans eight, we have this character about the Holy Spirit pleading with the Father and changing our prayers, and in the legal construct, we have the Holy Spirit somehow changing what we're saying so it's acceptable to God, rather than pleading with God to us as of His divine character. And that's what Roman 8 actually says, that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us, and then it says the Father, if the Father is for us, who can be against us, and then Christ is also interceding for us. So Roman 8 has the Father, Son, and Spirit all interceding for us. Not interceding with each other, interceding for us. 
and I've described in several places what the intercession actually is. It's not what you've said. That's the lie. That's the, the pagan view. That's the penal view. That's the human justice system where God is sitting up here on a, on a judicial, and Jesus is the advocate pleading to intercede. That's human law. No, God intercedes in three places. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned in Eden, you read in Genesis 3, God speaks to the serpent and he says, I, will, I, God, will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, people, human, the church. In other words, I'm going to intercede in the hearts of people and I'm going to put a desire for good, a longing for something better. I'm not going to let them feel satisfied with your corruption. He's interceding in our hearts to, to woo us, to draw us, to convict us. The Spirit convicts us then. Two, he intercedes with the principalities and powers of darkness. He puts the hedge of protection around. You see in the book of Job, you see it with Elisha and the angel armies. You see it when it's described in the New Testament that we war against principalities and powers of darkness and God has sends his angels to the four winds, holding back the four winds of strife. He's interceding with evil forces. But most importantly, Jesus interceded through Jesus Christ, his human Ministry on earth and his work, his life, death, resurrection. He interceded with the natural trajectory of what sin does to human beings. The natural outcome from Adam's choice in Eden was that the human species would cease to exist. We would die. The wages of sin is death. Jesus, though he knew no sin, became sins for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He interceded with that trajectory and opened a new avenue for all who freely choose can be a participant in what he offers and thus he alters the outcome for all who want it. What does it mean when he knew no sin became sin for us? Yes, so he didn't sin himself, but he took the sin condition upon himself, was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. Each one of us are tempted when we're dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires. In Gethsemane, you see Christ's humanity weighing upon him. He's having terrible human agony and suffering, which is tempting him, and he prays, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, which tells us the, the pull of his human emotion was to what? Save who? Save self. So he felt that internal pull, but with every temptation, Christ, not my will be done, but thy will be done. He chooses to self-sacrifice and give himself in love anyway. Thus he overcomes that internal drive and establishes a new humanity. And that's why it says in Hebrews 5, 8, 9, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Once he was made perfect, wasn't he always perfect? He's always sinless. Bible perfection is about a mature character. Character cannot be created by God. God creates sinless beings. Character is developed by the free will choices of those beings. After Adam's sin, no human being could create a perfect, sinless human character. So Jesus came, picked up humanity, broken and damaged by what Adam had done to it, and he, through his exercise of his human choices with his human brains, carried humanity to perfection, and he perfected the human species in his own journey. And now, because of his victory, the door is open for all of us to participate with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. The Spirit will take his victory and reproduce it in us, and we get a new heart, we get a new spirit, we get new desires. No longer I that live. So is there, after I've kind of given this description of these two systems, this Babylon as well, this abomination, is there a need at this time in human history for a clarifying message to go forward? And what is the message that's to go forward that is different, okay, 
Remember, we just talked, Revelation 14, over 100 years ago presented, didn't work, things didn't happen, infection with imperialism. What is different, Revelation 18, same message is to be given, how is it to be given different today than it was then? What's the difference? Pardon? Brilliant, brilliant. So I read in Review and Herald, March 11, 1890, it says the following. As a people, this is the Advent Church, Adventist Church, giving the three angels' message, Back over 100 years ago, this is what was written. As a people, we have preached the law until we are as dry as the hills of Gilboa that had neither dew nor rain. We must preach Christ in the law and there will be sap and nourishment in the preaching that will be as food to a famishing flock of God. How did the message go forward over 100 years ago? Through a legal view. Arguing the law itself through an imposed view of God, that he has a law. And the Bible nowhere shows that God ever changed his Sabbath from Sabbath to Sunday. And if you're keeping the wrong day, God has a law. And And this whole legal thing, which was a corruption. What would it mean to present Christ in the law? Would it mean that we're presenting the idea that Jesus paid our legal payment to appease the wrath of the Father who punishes the lawbreaker unless we're presenting Christ as the payment in the law? Is that what it means? That's how some would want you to think, but that's not what it means. Christ in the law is the living embodiment of the law. Get your mind around the reality of God's law. The law of love is a living law. Living law. It cannot be understood, experienced, or fully realized written on stone. It can only be fully realized in a living being. But wait a second, the Ten Commandments are transcripts of God character somebody's going to throw out. Okay, I can take some of your blood cells and I can run it in a lab and I can get a DNA sequence for you. And I can print that out on paper and say, here's your DNA sequence. And I can say that DNA sequence is a transcript of you. It is, isn't it? Does that mean I know the sound of your laugh? The, the, the joy of your smile? The warmth of your hug? Do I know you, the person, your character, your kindness, or your evil, if you're evil? Do I know that by looking at your DNA code? No. God's law is a living law. It's the law of beneficence, the law of compassion, the law of mercy, the law of grace, the law of giving, the law of truth. It's operational. It's functional. It lives. And you can't understand it written on stone. When you boil it down to a list of rules, it's a dead law, dry as the hills of Gilboa. So we see in Christ what the law looks like. And what does the law look like? It looks like breaking a lot of rules. Pick up your mat on Sabbath and carry it home. What are you doing breaking our Sabbath rules? What are you doing? And on and on. But he he loved people. He did what was right for people. And you see this all through Scripture. I love the story of the Good Samaritan. In the story of the Good Samaritan, we have a Levite, we have a priest, we have a Samaritan, we have the wounded man. These are the big operators here. Now, you know the story. At the end of the day, which one of those is the one that is the, the, the light of heaven shining upon as a representative of God's kingdom and who is standing in right relationship with God? Which one? Samaritan. The Samaritan. As far as we know, <clears throat> how many sacrifices at temple did the Samaritan give? How many Sabbaths did he keep? Did he keep a kosher diet? Did he pay his tithe? 
Do we have any record of him doing all the religious? But the Pharisee, the Levite, they paid regular tithe. They paid on their herbs of their garden. They, they went to church on the right day. They did the sacrifices of the temple. They, they ate the kosher diet. They did all the stuff the law required, but yet they weren't right with God. Why? Because they were keeping a dead law. The Samaritan was keeping a living law. You see the difference? Last two paragraphs... Let's see. Thus, the message of Revelation 18 is different, is different than the one in 14 because we're focusing on worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. Worship on design law, how reality works, come back into harmony with him. And so last two paragraphs say, whether the perfect fulfillment now has come, only God knows. But what we do know is that according to these texts, spiritual Babylon will one day face the judgment of God because of her great evil. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. This expression reflects language from the Old Testament about ancient Babylon as well, and means that a time of judgment is sure to come. Of course, this coming judgment shouldn't be a surprise after all. Babylon of old faced judgment. Scripture is in numerous places is very clear on that one day everyone will have to answer for their deeds, including Babylon. How comforting to know, how comforting to know that as Christians we have an intercessor in that judgment who will stand for us. Otherwise, our fate might not be much better than that of the Babylons, Babylonians or Babylons. Is this the final message? Or in fact, did I just read evidence of the infection that prevents the final message from going forth? Tim, there's a, there's a parallel of um, the way the aim and, and uh, you know, sort of perpetrated or executed the quote-unquote judgment of God against Israel in the sense that Linda was sharing this with me last week, that the um, Babylon was ultimately um, rebuked and, and condemned by God for having taken its judgment too far. In other words, sometimes I'm going, to, I'm going to go to an analogy for us as Christians. Sometimes we are so anxious to get people to accept and appreciate the intensity of our belief in Scripture, whether it be uh, the laws or the prophecies or whatever, that we sort of beat them and we beat them too hard with the truth. And ultimately, God. You see, you see, though, you see, though, Ken. What I'm presenting here is we're not beating people with the truth. No, well, we're beating people with a distortion that we think is true. When we actually come to the truth, we don't practice that method anymore. That very method you're describing is not the truth. Absolutely. Okay. And so I just want to clarify that point. Yeah. yeah. So what we just read here, let's examine, and what's described here. In, in these two paragraphs, Babylon will face judgment. From whom are they suggesting Babylon will face judgment? From God. What is implied will happen as a result of this judgment? Destruction. Punishment, destruction. For, um, for what will there be punishment? Why is the punishment coming? According to the lesson, everyone will have to answer for their deeds. Christians have a source of comfort, though. And what's our source of comfort? We have an intercessor in the judgment. And what's the lesson suggesting the intercessor is going to do for us? Protect us from what God would do for us if there wasn't an intercessor there to protect us. That's what they're suggesting. If you think my conclusion is incorrect, and I'm misreading what is said in these two paragraphs, then simply look at the bottom pink section right below that, and where it says, quote, how can you, ta how can you take comfort in the promise 
that all the injustices and iniquity that seem to go unpunished now will face one day the final retribution of God. You can't. You know, rightly, you can't, but this is what they're suggesting, that we should take comfort to know that all the injustices... You see, I've talked to the editor of this journal. He is a converted Jew. And one of the things he told me was it is not fair that Hitler simply dies for all his evil. That it, it, the only way justice can be served is God keeps him alive and tortures him for a long time before God kills him. You see, and he's going to take comfort in the fact that God is going to add up the sins and then torture Hitler and other people. So let's see if you can take comfort in this. Let's see. I want you to be comforted and see if this will work for you. You have a child. You're your child. You love your child. But sadly, your child has been seduced into sin by friends and they've got an addiction problem, a pornography problem, an alcohol problem. They've gone into stealing. They've rejected God. They've never been reconciled to him and they die in an unrepented and unhealed state then one day you get to stand on the new jerusalem and watch god torture your child in the utmost pain only an infinite being could inflict upon them are you comforted but we're to drive com- we're derived comfort from this idea yes or if your child killed one of your other children <laughs> and you suffered because of the death of your child but you're also suffering because of the loss of your child's Strange. Both are suffering as a father for what's happened to your children. You're the loss of a child or loss of two children. One is lost because you got killed, another. You're getting no comfort from the punishment of that wayward child. Let me put this very plainly. What I just read in this art in this lesson is the wine of Babylon. This idea, this concept, is the lie from which we must free ourselves. The idea that God's law requires God to inflict punishment is a lie. It is Satan's lie from the beginning in heaven and it has affected all humanity. It's the basis of paganism. It is the reason for people who have rejected God and believe evolution. And it is the basis, the foundation of penal substitution theology. And it's penal substitution theology that that teaches this idea and keeps this alive. And if we're really going to do our work as a people, we have to reject that and get it out of our institutions and get it out of our, our workbooks and get it out of our, our Bible studies and get it out of our minds and hearts. Tuesday's lesson. When you hear of the Battle of Armageddon, what comes to mind? How is it most frequently taught? It's a physical conflict in Israel. That's how it's most frequently taught. That's exactly right. The lesson states though in paragraph 3, and I think they get this right, Scripture presents Armageddon as the ultimate climax, not between squabbling nations, but between two sides of a cosmic controversy. It's a religious struggle, not an economic or political, however much economic and political factors might come into play. I think that's correct. This is a battle for the hearts and minds of God's children. Now, that doesn't mean there may not be activities happening in the Middle East, but they're just part of a larger landscape of who do you believe and what do you think is happening, what's the meaning and who's doing what. The lesson asks us to read Revelation 16, 12 through 16. I'm going to read it first out of the NIV. It says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are the spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, 
I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together in the place that in the Hebrew is called Armageddon. Is that very clear to everyone? You have a clear understanding of what it means? It's like quite graphic, quite exciting, but what does it mean? Uh, we don't have time to unpack it point by point. We're running out of time here today. I'll just read to you. Maybe this will help. It doesn't unpack it all either, but maybe we'll use my ideas uh, from the remedy. The sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river Euphrates, symbolizing the withdrawal of God's forces of righteousness as a shield against the kings from the east, symbolic of the corrupting powers of mysticism. I saw three spirits whose minds had not been cleansed by the lies about God. They, they looked like frogs catching their prey with their lying tongues. They came telling the lies of mysticism and spiritualism from the dragon, the lies of coercion and force from the beast, and the lies of pagan appeasement theology from the false prophet. They are spiritual movements of fallen angels, demons who perform miracles and go to the rulers of the world to unite them in a war against the truth about God and his methods of love on the great day of God Almighty. Understand this. To the healed, my coming will be... To the unhealed, to the unhealed, my coming will be unexpected, like that of a thief. But the healed who have guarded their hearts and kept their characters pure, will be happy at my coming and will not be shamed by the exposure of an unhealed character. Then the demonic forces united the nations together in their opposition to God and his methods of love, bringing them to what is known in the Hebrews, Armageddon, or the Mount of Assembly, the mount where God rules. There are four primary distortions being taught about God in this final battle for the minds and hearts of people. And the four primary distortions from these lying demons that catch prey with their lies, like the frog catches with their tongue, there are mysticism, which is, this is mysticism, there are no intelligent God with his own identity and individuality, but cosmic force that requires, requires both good and evil to exist for all eternity to keep the universe in balance. And we have access to this force and we can access it for good or evil. This is mysticism. It's the Eastern mystical religions. There's no intelligent God. There's only force. And the good and evil must exist in balance. That's Satan's goal, of course, because he wants to co-rule the universe and have evil exist for all eternity. The next lie is spiritualism. You cannot die, and the dead continue to exist in a conscious, non-physical form, carrying out both good and evil. That was Satan's lie in Eden. You will not die. God, no, you won't. There's no death. You just continue to live. You have eternal life. It's not biblical, of course. Third, imperialism. Justice is the use of power to coerce, force, and punish those who disobey. That's the third lie, imperialism. And fourth, penal substitution theologies, which manifest in most pagan religions and, sadly, in Christianity. God is the source of inflicted punishments and will punish unless he has offered the blood of an innocent human sacrifice, an innocent human sacrifice to propitiate his wrath. That's the fourth lie. Do you see this infection, this lie, these lies, how they've taken over the world? And they're battling for your heart and mind. Now with this in mind, we have one minute, jump back to uh, Monday's lesson. We're going to read a paragraph there. It's from the book called The Great Controversy. And it says... 
The Bible declares that before the coming of the Lord, Satan will work with all the powers and signs and lying wonders, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness, and that they receive not the uh, and that they that receive not the love of truth that they might be saved will be left to receive strong delusion that they should be believe a lie. Not until this condition shall be reached and the union of the church with the world shall be fully accomplished throughout Christendom will the fall of Babylon be complete. The change is a progressive one. And the perfect fulfillment of Revelation 14.8 is yet future. What do you think it means for the church to become like the world? What, what would that look like? What would it mean practically? Wouldn't it mean holding to the same beliefs and teaching the same methods and practicing the same principles that the systems of the world practice? Which are beastly. Not only are they lies... They practice the methods of not truth presented in love, leaving people free. That's the method of God. They instead coerce people. This is, again, no one can buy or sell, save him who has the mark of the beast. We call that today economic sanctions. That's what that is. Tariffs. And that's how the states of the, of the world work. And the church will collude with this methodology and seek to gain governmental control, to pass laws, to pressure and coerce people to obey your moral views. Do you see this happening in America and other places in the world? I'll leave you with this to figure out on your own, but I'll leave you with the question of just watch what's happening constantly in our country in the last 10 years on the question of abortion. Are Christians practicing the method of conversion? Let's convert people. Are they practicing, let's get a hold of the state and coerce people? And it's not a question of whether you believe abortion is right or wrong. That's not the question. It's what method do you use to reach people? And that's the subtlety of it. The subtlety is to, is to set something up that you believe is good. In the dark age, it was good to bring people to make a confession in Jesus Christ. It was good for that. So let's burn them at the stake to make them confess Jesus Christ. The same method is being used by many people today, and they think it's good. Our job is to convert. To, well, I should say our job is to present truth, not let the Holy Spirit convert, but it's, it's, it's the principle of Christianity is conversion, not coercion. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are an amazing God. And as we look around the world, yeah, the, the, the lies of the three frogs have, have taken such deep root in this world and so many people just assume that you are like dictators from the past, a powerful deity who's overseas to inflict punishment. But praise God that Jesus has revealed you're not like that at all. It's time, Lord. We're eager. We want your spirit to be poured out. We want the latter rain to empower and enlighten and ennoble and enable so that this message can go forward and that we can see you face to face. We pray in your holy name. Amen.